So a few years ago, we uh, before COVID, we decided to do some church swaps where we send somebody to Kingston and somebody from Kingston comes here. And so Ben went out and spent a week with Alan Sherry uh, in Kingston and kind of saw how they did things, landed in their neighborhood for a while. And then uh, some of you may remember Chris Brooks who came here for like it was supposed to be a week and then it was three months all of a sudden he's still living at rocks I think but um, he was a character but yeah so we've had a kind of a church connection with the church called Russell in Kingston uh, that Al was the one who planted uh, and I remember uh, this will just give you a little taste of how I how I picture or think about Al I remember um, saying to him man that Russell church I, I went and experienced it once that, that is the coolest church. I just love that place. And he looked at me and he said, you know, cool church. I don't really care about cool church, but if it's a loving place, I'll be, help, I'll be really happy to hear that our church is a loving place. And so he, uh, without knowing it, um, brought some correction into my mind that day. And I'm sure he's going to have things that we can learn from him today. So let's give Al a, a little hand. I often wondered if I would ever get quoted, but uh, that's almost a direct quote. I know that uh, um, being a church planter and trying to uh, navigate what it looks like when like, strangers come into your space and you have to talk to them about what it means to follow Christ. And uh, I remember we got a lot of that. And man, it's, uh, you guys are cool. And I, I recognized it really quickly that that word was bothering me. And uh, that was the last thing I wanted to be. Um, so... I want to thank you guys for letting me be here. Um, the only way I can actually afford to come here is if I stay with the Alfreds. Um, so we always leave them, a, leave them a good review on TripAdvisor. He did leave me at the airport, though, longer than was uh, in the brochure. But, uh, yeah, so I want to thank you for having me. Uh, I want to thank you that we're part of your soundtrack. I hope your date with God goes really well today. Um, one of the things that I recognize that... Um, I'm, I'm not pastoring a church right now. I, I, um, I work for a, a, a food rescue. Um, we, do, uh, we do housing initiatives. And um, so, yeah, so it's, it's funny because I think um, the unlikeliness of how God uses people, it always amuses me because uh, on day to day I'm cleaning uh, toilets at a homeless shelter. So I want to thank you guys for, for letting me be here and uh, giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, most of my life I've learned nothing about following God from books, from movies or film. Um, I've learned it mostly from the people I hang out with. And I learn it mostly um, because uh, I tend to make great, great mistakes. And uh, so what, if you guys are going to take any notes today, and you want to know any things, the things that not to do in terms of following God, you can take note because these are some of the things I've learned over the years of trying my best to follow God. I'm just going to leave you with a passage. I'm going to give you a passage because that's where I'm going to try to uh, anchor myself in. It's from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 10, 24 to 39. A disciple is not above the teacher. And we hear the word disciple. Uh, for those of you, that's where we get the word discipline. But it means a learner. Um, a learner is not above the teacher nor a slave above the master. 
It isn't enough for the disciple to be like the teacher and the slave like the master. If they call the master of the household Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered, and nothing secret that will become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are more valuable than sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. Those are the kind of words that you read in scripture. And not only they are loaded, loaded words. What I have been reading these for the last two weeks. And I recognize that um, in my life that there's something about the way I picture God. There's something about the, the way I actually imagine God. And the three things that I want to leave with you today is, is that I have definitely been uh, a slave to fashion. Wait for the humor for the laughter. As you know, my wife dresses me. But I have been a slave to, I'm going to just change a bit, fashioning. Um, I have made God up most of my life. And most of my life, I've figured out a way to actually um, make, make an image of God that kind of fits me. Um, you know, when I was a kid, um, I felt like the most times I prayed when I, was, when I needed a good mark on a test. And, and when I felt alone, I was never really um, wanting to have God in my life. I was wanting to do my own thing. And so I became a master at uh, creating a God in my own image. And I, it's funny, Ben, when you did, we were talking about the offering, it came to mind. And uh, when I first um, pastored a church, a lot of the people that came out and, and were like, we, when you put a bunch of people in a room with all a bunch of different images of what God looks like, who Jesus is, and what it means to follow um, that still small voice called the Holy Spirit, you're going to get a lot of different ideas of what Christ looks like, what God looks like. And so we tend to make these our own pictures in our mind. And I remember um, somebody on our, our board saying, um, you know what would be a good idea? Um, when we pass the offering plate around, it would be a good idea because a lot of people that are here have a really prob real problem because they imagine God as a, a bit of a capitalist and just someone who's out to take your money. And so here's a good idea. When we passed the offering plate, we did this. I don't recommend this. We said, wouldn't it be a good idea if you could reach into the plate and take money out? A little flip. And we didn't realize that the human condition, as broken as it is, we figured that no one is going to do this. <laughs> like, there's, like, with, and we're talking, our, I went from 35 people in a small group to our first Sunday, we had 224 people. And so and these are strangers. And this is what we come up with. We are not going to be the church that you have an image as God is someone who's going to take your money. So here's what we want you to do. If you have the need, 
If you feel that you need help this week, we don't want to be the person keeping withholding the offering plate from you. Well, it didn't take very long, um, about two weeks, where strangers kept coming to church, and they would stop me in the aisle going, hey, when are you guys going to take up the offering? i got to go. <laughs> and here's what we figured we'd do. Instead of like leaving money in the plate, we decided we'll just write checks. And so each week, my treasurer got more and more angry. Because she'd stand up, she goes, yeah, the checks are in the plate. And, and it basically became this like episode where we were just enabling people. But the image that people had when they walked into our church is, you guys are no different than the rest, of you, the rest of them. And I thought, you know what? To curb that, we'll just try to thwart that. It failed miserably. Um, because humans will be humans, and everyone wants to ruin a great thing. But on my better days, uh, I'm not a slave to fashion. I let the master be the master, the one who knows much more than the student. But some days, I think I have just made you up. You were just an imaginary friend. You were just, a, you were just my buddy when I needed you. I needed you to exist in my world. I needed you to serve my kingdom and just become available. I think I made you up. At that point in my life, I figured out that I would mastered very little and following Christ was often just a pastime. I had become a fan, but not a follower. I had the jersey, but I didn't have season tickets. My mentor, my master, spent many days wondering if I'd ever show up to lessons. And here's the part that drove me crazy, and, this, and some of you might know this, that there's a part of me that recognized that if I were not showing up for my lessons, if I were not showing up to be taught by the master, I'd be like, hey, where were you? I was here, where were you? It never happened once, and that drove me crazy. He was just like, it's great to see you. And for those of you who've had a life of Christ, you'll recognize that there's nothing in him that's saying, I can't believe you're not here, or how did you get into this mess? And I think what happens is that when you have a image and you're fashion a God in the way you want to imagine he would be, and give him like human attributes and make him fit your kind of agendas, it fails. And I did this over and over and over. I needed God to fit my choices. I needed Christ to be in my lifestyle. I needed him because I fashioned him myself. God's image was based on how I needed him to be. I often hushed the Holy Ghost because I didn't want to listen. I had put baby in a corner. I had domesticated, denied, and I deconstructed God. And the people that I hung out with, this is exactly what they were doing. They had domesticated God. They had denied him most of their lives. And now they're starting to deconstruct God. And if you've ever been with that person, the person that just wants to take the God that they grew up with and knew, now they want to just unpack it all. And the stuff that they were taught, the stuff that they were shown, they're like, you know what, none of this fits anymore. I get it. How many of you guys grew up with a flannel gram? <laughs> yeah. It basically, this is like, I'm, I know Cam Taylor, you, you get your hand up. I know you grew up with I think what happens, <laughs> this is like, when I was a kid, this is the way that they had to tell the, the God story. They would have, be like taking your pajamas and putting it on like an over, a board and then getting cut out pictures. And most of the time, the pictures for me were, were pictures that were quite terrifying. It was like, it was like a big chasm with a bunch of like, 
pajama flames, and then a, a pajama cross. And as a little kid, and they said, this is the bridge to God. And, and basically all of the church at that point I seemed to have was just fear and shame and, and just terrify me into the kingdom of God. And I remember looking as a kid going, it's not really that good of a bridge. It's like a, a T. And like, do I go up around it? or do I, How do I really get by there? And, I, and I, I knew that at that point that if I had my image of God based on what the people in front of me have figured out about God, that I wasn't going to get very far. And I think possibly that's why I, I got involved in church planting. But I, I was making God up daily. He was my buddy. He wasn't Jehovah Jireh. He was just a vending machine. He wasn't good. He was tamed. The more I studied, the less I knew. If you want to become a slave to fashioning God, then you will know that the teacher will start to resemble the student over and over and over. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've made God up. Maybe it's time for a personal makeover where you submit and let the mystery of God who loves you have his way in your life. Have you imagined a life where you rarely have to put anything in but still wish for great results? <laughs> Sounds great. Maybe you're afraid of who you might become if you were to submit. I get it. But perhaps you've been sold that weird character, caricature of Christ that's been woven together with guilt, shame, and transactions. This happens a great deal, and I'm sorry if that happened to you. May you experience Christ in a new way. Um, growing up um, with a single mom and a few practice dads, um, I became uh, pretty anxious, and I recognized that um, as I got older that there's no demon like control. And, and when I became pretty anxious, I recognized that when you become anxious and you live uh, with night sweats and you watch the world around you that looks pretty terrifying, um, it becomes very difficult to not become a slave to fear. And I recognized that as I pastored churches, as I lived a, a life with family, that um, most of my uh, inner world was just absolutely terrified. And I recognized that what I started to do was that I recognized that I probably less and less could stand on anything that God claimed for me. You are more worth than more than sparrows. God knows the hairs numbered on your head. Um, in my janitor's uh, closet where I work, I have uh, Isaiah 41.10. It says, fear, I kept, I kept, I love this. It's got the old King James. Fear thee not, for I am with thou. And I walk past that daily. Because I need to know, as a person that's so bound by fear, like crippled by the way the world is kind of spinning out, I need to have this idea that I don't want to be a slave to fear. There's this interesting uh, portion in Jeremiah that Jeremiah is, um, he's got his, basically if you're a prophet, you're kind of like ants to a picnic. No one wants to listen to you. And it's a hard life. And in Jeremiah, it's got this thing where, this little wording, it goes, I'll just read it to you. I wrote it down. I'm not going to try to remember what Jeremiah said. <laughs> oh, Lord, you've enticed me and I was enticed. You have overpowered me and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. 
For whenever I speak, I must cry out, I must shout, violence and destruction. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and a derision all day long. If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, then within me, this is crazy, there is something like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I feel you, Jeremiah. I am weary and holding it in, and I cannot. For I hear many whispering, terror is all around. Denounce him, let us denounce him. All my close friends are watching, waiting for me to stumble. Perhaps he can be enticed, and we can prevail against him and take our revenge on him. 2011. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. I've never seen that in Scripture. A dread warrior. All of my fears, all of my anxieties, all of the things that I can't control, even though I want to control, I have a dread warrior in my corner. I work with this kid, uh, his name's Eddie, and from time to time, I can't figure out my phone. From time to time, I've forgotten something and he picked up. And he sends me the text that I, I, I love seeing. And it just says, uh, it's like, I said, three vowels and two consonants. I got you. And whenever I see that, I recognize that that is the very thing that God says to me every single day of my life, of my worried, frantic, anxiety-ridden life. God says, I got you. You are my dread warrior. Our lives in this world are stressful and terrifying. Job security, falling stock markets, homelessness, rich people in submarines being lost at sea. It's no wonder why we're not all bunkered, applying bubble wrap to our soon-to-be wounded souls. The readers of that passage in Matthew, I read, were being hauled off just for believing in Christ. They're being fed to lions in Nero's circus. These people have real fear. Here's the problem with a fear-based life. It's far from a new life in Christ. I love this Greek word. It's called metanoia. It means to turn 180. It's where we get the word understanding of repent. The opposite of metanoia is paranoia, where you're absolutely riveted and stuck. Maybe you have a housing. Maybe you have employment fears. Maybe you even have health concerns. I know that finances have scared me ever since I got my first pay package. Maybe you're afraid to trust Christ with your life. But know this, that the claims made on your life by a loving God banish all darkness and dread. But the Lord is with me like a dread warrior. Therefore my persecutors will stumble and they will not prevail. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. When I could not see the steps in front of me, you gave me a lush meadow. Where there was sorrow, you gave me beauty for ashes, an oil of joy for mourning, and a garment of praise for a spirit of heaviness. Where there was sickness, you made me well. When I was lost, you sought me out. When I felt worthless, you gave me ridiculous, everlasting life at a ridiculous cost. When my enemies were at my door, you sent rescue. When I felt alone, you promised to never leave or forsake me. No one can make claims like this. You are now my dread warrior. 
You were made to be fearless. Remember that. No one or anything can ever take what is already hidden in Christ. Nothing can separate you from the relentless love of God. So, like I said, it's not a great idea to be a slave to fashion. You may want to stop making God up so it fits your agenda, makes, makes your life a lot easier. I've never known this faith life to be easy. Um, and if I was to stand here and tell you that, I'd be blowing sunshine up your skirt. It's, it's not uh, going to happen. Um, and it would be a, a, very, a very big lie that that would be the gospel I would tell you. So, so yeah, so I think being a slave to fear, being a slave to fashion, um, probably things you probably should avoid. Um, but this is the one that got me to the most thinking and probably bothered me the most. The idea that, that Christ would bring a sword and the very peace that he would bring would be something that if you were to read it, it's funny, my mom, my mom phoned me about three months ago. Or no, it's longer now. There's no fact checkers here, so I, it was like, yeah, it was like two weeks ago. My mom phones me two weeks ago, and she says, Alan, um, the ladies in my Bible study are really bothered by this chunk in Matthew where it says that God's gonna, Christ is going to bring a sword, and he's going to separate uh, mothers from mother, daughter-in-laws and fathers from son-in-laws. And I don't really think that that should be in the Bible. Like, what should I be telling these ladies? And I, I needed to actually recant to my mom because I said, well, you know what? Like, Jesus says crazy things all the time. Like, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Like, seriously, I'm going to tear down this, this temple and you're raised up in three days. And I remember saying to my mom, I said, it's, you know, to, to, if, if, you're not following, if you're not following God in such a way that the people around you are not getting easily offended or bothered, even questioning why you believe what you do, you're probably doing it wrong. And that's what I said to my mom. And then last week I, I was able to recant. And I said, Mom, I think, I think Christ does bring swords to family reunions. And I, I, I'm almost positive that the peace that we think is not the peace that he brings. And I, I recognize this more and more in family. <sighs> but here's the thing. I have a hard time with the F word, family. And I think sometimes, I think sometimes I am a slave to family. Um, but yeah, this is a demanding life. And sure, joy, contentment, and peace happen. But there's a great deal of effort needed, needed when you start to believe. There's no guarantee, save for that I've overcome the world. And I know that that in uh, Christ's death, I've been washed in a baptism that has me hidden in Christ. But I also know that there's a sword bearer that's bringing truth. I told you at the start, I clean washrooms for a living right now at homeless shelters. And uh, a week ago, a lady says to me, I said, we had just had our staff appreciation dinner, our volunteer appreciation dinner. And I said, um, how'd you like the barbecue? And this is like, I gotta put some context in. This is like Tuesday morning at around five o'clock when I do food rescue with this woman. And she says, I don't like barbecues. I said, what, who doesn't like a barbecue? I said, they had like, like, like amazing hamburgers and ribs and sausages. And she says, yeah, I, I can't do sausage. 
Because when I was a kid, um, my uncle um, uh, took advantage of me sexually. And now, you don't see that coming Tuesday morning at 5 a.m. And the first thing I said was, I had a hard time listening, and I didn't recognize that I'd have to have some pastoral clothes on at 5 in the morning on a Tuesday. I said, I hope you told your parents. And she said, I did, but they didn't believe me. And this is a woman in her 60s. That's an entire life of peace at a family table that was all just covered up. And I thought, this is what it means when Christ says, I'm going to drag a sword to the family reunion. Because that little evil begat another evil that took the course of a woman's life and actually made it hard to live. I think it's interesting that, that Christ has this amazing ability to drag truth into family in such a way that I recognize that in my own family it's been happening since the day I started to become a father. I started to navigate what it means to be with in-laws, what it means to be in a home that was broken. And I recognize that the truth that's needed on a daily basis is truth like that where Christ comes to family reunions with swords. And what's interesting is that I recognize that if God redeems all things, that there's got to be some sort of redemption in these stories. In the 50s, they had this idea that the nuclear family was basically uh, mom, dad, Two kids, car in the driveway, a Westinghouse fridge and freezer, and family values in the 50s became something that we actually, as the boomers, for some of you in this crowd know, kind of took into, um, into life. And recognizing that, that family values, um, when they look like concealing evil, that doesn't mean anything to me now. I think there's no such thing as family values. Um, I know that because... <laughs> The, the people I hang out with on a day-to-day -day basis, nothing looks nuclear in their life, save for some of the choices they make. Um, but family values give way now to, for me, to kingdom values. And what does kingdom values look like? Kingdom values would have been speaking truth at that table. Kingdom values would have been speaking in such a way that they wouldn't have to bury what happens in a family in such a way that it's damaging lives still. I got to go to um, I got to go to Ireland um, with my first wife. Wait for laughter. My only wife. She's my first wife. First gold medalist. No one else would stay with me. Um, I got to go to Ing to Ireland um, with my father's remains and meet some of the people I've heard my wife talk about. I got to meet her family in Ireland, and I got to meet Aunt Olive. And Aunt Olive was everything in the brochure that Sherry told me she would be. She was gentle, and she, this is Northern Ireland, so we're talking, this is like, this is conservative Ireland. And, uh, and she would be in her 80s. And uh, I heard a story about um, Aunt Olive's grandson. And I had only heard the stories of Stuart, and I only got to meet Stuart while I was in Ireland. And the story goes that uh, Aunt Olive's son, John, um, Stuart wasn't, um, 
Well, didn't have any family, family values, and he was living his life in such a way that he was making a mess of things around his family. And so John, the father, decides to say, you no longer can be in my home. And, you know, drags a sword. It's truth. You're making a problem. This is a problem. You're, you're growing up. And what is interesting about the story that, that I, when I think about it, is that uh, Anne Olive, the grandmother, sees the grandson now homeless on the street. Yeah, there was like substance involved and choices that weren't great. And Aunt Olive does the one thing that I hope we could all one day do, and that's drag a sword to a family reunion. She opens the door and lets Stuart live at her house. And um, a year later, Stuart goes to Teen Challenge, which is not for teens anymore. This is a 30-year-old man that goes. And Stuart meets Christ. And a year later, Stuart marries a doctor and now they have three kids. And I got to meet Stuart. And he's the most joyous man I've ever met. What happens if Aunt Olive closes the door on that kid? What happens if Aunt Olive doesn't drag a sword to a family reunion and lets that kid be homeless and on the street without anywhere to go? Aunt Olive knows what it means to have kingdom values. Because there's no... You can't be that lost that you can't come home. You can't be that forgotten that you're not welcome. And I want to say that after meeting her and recognizing that who Sherry has told me about her, that she's the real deal and that she did bring truth to that family in such a way that it changed the life. So for those of you who want to curse your branches, I get it. It's hard to be in family. But maybe you've been bringing a butter knife when you need to bring a sword. Maybe some of you have been wielding a machete in the name of Christ when you needed to turn in all your weapons at the door and stand down. Maybe some of you have decided to quit on family as it doesn't seem to be working. Maybe some of you are estranged from loved ones. I know that family often produces heavy crosses to bear. But know this, Christ was at odd with his family. And when asked who is his family, he said, those who obey me. That's who my family is. I think that most of scripture gets boiled down to, it might just be believing in God and doing what God says. This way, the likelihood of the apprentice looking like the master will be much greater. Not a weird caricature, caricature you drew, but a stunning resemblance of Christ. A fearless rendition of a servant and a savior, a Lord. Today, the holy of, holiest of ghosts may be haunting your thoughts, actions, and choices. Stop doing what you hate. Choose life and lay down in Calvary's crime scene. Police yellow line cutout tape. Yeah, it looks like this, that weird bridge over the pajamas. I know that that weird bridge called a cross was a surrender and a victory all in one. The servant is never greater than the master. So in conclusion, don't be a slave to fashion, fear, or family. But be buried in the death and resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, I want to thank you that um, we get to be lifelong learners. 
and uh, following you is not as easy as just watching a film or reading a book. It takes courage, it takes faith, and I want to thank you that I get to stand up and talk about you. Uh, may you be um, great peace, the real peace to people here today. And if any hornet nests have been poked, I pray that you continue to heal. Amen.